I, I still can't understand how he did this. He just won the game on the most unspectacular hit ever in probably in World Series history. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm, uh... I'm, I'm fucking hammered. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Same. I'm quite hammered. Well, I'm, I, I, I'm enjoying the buzz. Yeah, ride it. Ride the buzz. These are the tales of baseball past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons on and off diamond moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the basis stories. Patrick and I'm James. Uh, this is the story of the great and glorious 2001 uh, Diamondbacks, that uh, the first and only team uh, in, in Arizona that's won a major uh, sports championship. Um, but I will defer to James to finish that story on where we started the year prior. Going into that season, uh, Arizona had just made some unlikely noise uh, against the Mets previous year when there was some heartbreak, but then they made uh, a key acquisition and picking up Mark Grace in the offseason. And they suddenly had a healthy Kurt Schilling that they had traded for previously, who when he came over wasn't healthy. Uh, And then we had Randy Johnson, who, well, there's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame now and 2001 (laughs) had a lot to do with that. Um, and then we had a bunch of role players, uh, some of them who stepped up in major ways, like Luis Gonzalez, who had the most unlikely of monster seasons and finished it off in storybook fashion. So, uh, kind of. Going to uh, talking about like uh, Gonzo. Um, I remember, you know, granted, I, I, I was a kid. I was sixteen, and I just remember just how much of a dominant home run hitter, hitter he was. Like looking back, I I forget that. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, James. That he led the league in uh, home runs for that year, and he also won the home run derby too. Right. Right. Um, in two thousand one. He was in a home run chase with Barry Bonds through the first half of the season. Um, in April, Gonza was uh, making a play to set the record for most home runs in the month of April. With, I think it was 14. Sounds right. And then, and then uh, come June, it became like a, a two-horse race between Bonds and, and Gonzo for who was going to crush the most homers that year. And they both went to the home run derby, and Gonzo did win the the whole thing at the home run derby back under the old, well, not the old, old rules, but the the rules that ran things for a seven or eight year period in the middle there. Um, Eventually, you know, as we all know, Bonds kind of went on a tear towards the end of the season, and 
left, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and left, every, left everybody behind and <laughs> put up some video game numbers in the month of September, <laughs> or I guess it was August because that was the year of 9 11. But yeah, he went and crushed a lot of baseball. <laughs> if you're mentioning okay. the same sentence as Barry Bonds, I think, I think you're doing all right. Yeah, <laughs> even if it was for one for one season. <laughs> well, and they they had the same physical makeup too, so so you would, you would definitely <laughs> mis- mistake them for each other, absolutely. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Having spent time standing next to both of those players, <laughs> I can say for a certainty, I knew. <laughs> Joe, you bring up something interesting, though, and maybe I stir the pot. I don't know. Uh, Luis Gonzalez had 57 home runs in 2001. Um, It looks like he doesn't hit higher than 31 in any other season. Was Luis Gonzalez on steroids in 2001? (laughs) There's a lot of talk about here in town. Mm -hmm. Um, When he left Arizona... There were not so subtle insinuations that came from certain members of the front office at the time that Gonzo may have participated in the juicing of the day. Gonzo says he was clean. Gonzo never tested positive for anything. And by the time testing was in place, Gonzo was already on the downhill side of his career. Gonzo was a late bloomer as a hitter. Um, And his swing was tailored very nicely to Chase Field. Uh, Chase Field's got a a very, very big outfield, but that outfield fence is not terribly high. You can get a, a home run as long as you get it 10 feet off the ground and balls fly in that ballpark when those when those roof and panels are open, which is why Kurt Schilling was always insisting on them being closed when he pitched. <laughs> Didn't help him a whole lot. Kurt Schilling still gave up the most home runs in the league. Um, <laughs> but he only gave them up as solo shots, so they never really hurt. But I mean, Gonzo's left-handed swing, you know, he, he could dump it in, he could go off-field or pull it towards the pool. Either way, he didn't have to hit it 20 rows deep. He didn't hit a whole lot of moon shots and tape measure blasts. That was more Matt Williams and Reggie Sanders from those teams. But he hit for, once he opened up his stance, he was able to make contact consistently. And so he did real well that year. Um, There are plenty of, People that still have their suspicions. I mean, yeah, he grew in size that year. He had extra home run output. If somebody were to give me conclusive evidence today that, yeah, he juiced that year, I wouldn't be shocked. At the same time, if it was to be conclusively proven that, yeah, the changes he made in his swing just happened to work out real well that year. And it was a, you know, a perfect storm of events where he hit his physical prime the same year that he altered his swing where he opened it up more and he happened to be hitting in a homer friendly ballpark. I believe that too. So I mean, 
Well, I don't think it matters one way or the other in it with regards to Gonzo simply because we're not talking about a guy who put up any record-breaking numbers. We aren't talking about a guy who's a Hall of Famer or a potential Hall of Famer, so I don't think anybody's ever going to scrutinize his record too closely. Clearly, the other years, the, the windows were closed. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also, uh, building into this point, like people forget that um, we're, I think, the third or second highest ballpark uh, from an elevation standpoint. Third? Uh, second? Second. Yeah, so, so we're actually just over like 1,100, you know, 1,100 feet here. Um, so it, it's a little, uh, the ball definitely does carry more than it would in, in other parks. And I, I have to agree with James that there's no conclusive proof. There's a lot of rumors, a lot of like grumble, grumble. But you know, to me, you know, I, I don't think he did because it really just was that one year where he was overall just like absolutely like dominant. You know, Barry Bonds, we can point to multiple years um, right there. Um, and he really took off. Yeah, <laughs> that hat size got a lot bigger. <laughs> But either way, we're never we're probably never going to know for sure. Uh, I personally think that you know the ballpark factor helped out a lot, and he just really hit his stride. Um, but we'll really never find out. But he was definitely a big, a big and very important part of the team. Uh, and I know we're not going to dive in the playoffs just yet, but it, that's what made his final hit of the World Series so kind of funny. Was that it was just like a little Texas leaguer to win to win the whole thing off of a guy who was an absolute like homer and hitter for the whole season. Him and Brady Anderson will go down in history as two of the probably the most anomaly years from a home run perspective ever. <laughs> yep. It, it, I, I brought that up, but like it's not like Gonzo was a bad hitter other years. I mean the guy's yeah. got you know over a decade of above average to like pretty significantly above average hitting ability. It's not like he mm-hmm. was a scrub the other years. Right. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, outside of Gonzo, I mean, um, I mean, for me and probably for James, like the big thing about that year and really that kind of era of the Diamondbacks, just how dominant our starting pitching was. Like Schilling and Johnson, best one-two combo, in my opinion, ever. Um, just, it's they're just guaranteed to win games. That's what they came up and did, especially Johnson. Johnson, devastatingly good, catastrophically good. His, I, I, I still love watching replays of his slider versus his fastball. Because if you're a batter, it looks like the same thing coming out of his hand, but it's not. It's definitely not. It's just fun to watch that. And I don't think it's I ever going to be someone as so dominant. Tall that he took an extra six inches of. Uh, of stride that a lot of pitchers don't. Well, yep. when you know when they're already throwing that hard, and you have such a small fraction of time to make up your mind. Well, now he's taking another six inches off that time. So his ninety-two mile an hour slider, you know, look ninety-six coming out of his hand. <laughs> yep. Uh, he made a lot of batters look, look like fools, and he did it easily. I mean, I think we all forget just how 
granted, there's been some dominant pitchers, and we've seen them the last like few years, but I don't know if we've seen someone just who just batters hated to face, like feared facing, was Randy well, Johnson. And the thing that was amazing is he did it all left-handed, which you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, that's supposed to be the hit, the pitcher that has the bigger problems with platoon because there's so many right-handed hitters, and it didn't matter. I mean. There was in that day. There was exactly one hitter that didn't care who was on the mound, and that was Barry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Todd Helton took six days when Randy was on the mound, and <laughs> and, and and Helton was right up front about. It. He's like, RJ's on the mound. I'm a lefty trying to bat against him. Forget it. <laughs> Make this my scheduled day off because you're not going to get anything out of me. <laughs> Can you imagine as a as a, a very average human being that we all are stepping in the box against a guy who's six ten and you know he throws a hundred miles an hour? Nope. No. Nope. Can you even imagine <laughs> trying? <laughs> Hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> I, I like I, I picture it in my mind and because he was always an intimidating looking guy and he, he just had the permanent scowl on his face. Like he was just questioning why were you even at the plate? Why would you even show up? <laughs> have you guys just, ever? Uh, have you guys ever seen career? He was really acerbic, and then about two years, maybe almost three, after he got out of the game, though, when it finally kind of got out of the system a little bit, he is so laid back and relaxed and a joy to talk to about the game of baseball that it is amazing this is not the randy johnson that was the competitor but he had one mode it was on or off so he turned it on on day one of the season and it never got turned off until the season was over so even on his off days he was just gonna scowl and growl at you and Have you ever seen, so there's a video of, of uh, his daughter, his daughter posted something and it was like, this is my dad. And it's like him just like pumping fastballs and sliders and all that. And then it's like, <laughs> you'd be so scared of him. And then the next thing is like, but this is really my dad. And it's like him like painting and like hanging mm-hmm. out. And like, <laughs> it just being like a very like chill <laughs> laid back guy. And it's like, your dad was like the... The most uh, outside of like Pedro, and I'll I'll show my bias, but like outside of Pedro at the time, including including Pedro, like probably (laughs) the most feared guy. Like Pedro wasn't dominant physically; like he was dominant physically as well. Like outside of him, like the most dominant physical pitcher of all time, and he's just like the most chill, like you know, couldn't care about anything in the world, and like seems like the nicest guy, and like on the mound i i think that that's that's what i really appreciate about like a guy like max scherzer where it's like off the mound he seems like the coolest chillest guy and then on the mound he's like psychotic (laughs) it's a great way to put it (laughs) yeah and randy was definitely that just an absolute like death god on 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 the mound (laughs) i remember uh there's a clip out there of when John Cruck had to step into the box against him in uh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, I I know that. <laughs> yeah. And 
in, in one of the pitches. <laughs> this is before Randy came to Arizona and found his control, which, yeah, that never actually happened. He never found his control. <laughs> but uh, this was back when RJ just threw it up there, and he had no idea where it was going to end. It was going to end over there near the catcher somewhere. And you see Kruk die. I mean, Kruk was a big boy. And he's <laughs> sitting there. He's doing the backwards twist and dive and getting under it. <laughs> and like all of a sudden, he's just like, he stands up. He's like, oh, <laughs> I'm alive. I'm alive. Thank you. I didn't get my head crushed by a hundred mile an hour fastball. Uh, yeah, which brings us to uh I don't think it was to the two thousand one spring training where he crushed that bird, right? No, it wasn't two thousand one. It was two thousand three, I think. It was yeah. It was after the World <laughs> Series. He still I, uses I, I, that incident as the logo for his photography company that he wants. Of course he does. Of course he um, does. Exploding Bird uh, it, it, it's his company's logo. <laughs> it, it's still one of my favorite. Like, it, granted, this is not the 2001. I know, I know, but it's just that this <laughs> one, like the quintessential Randy Johnson moments where he just ends a bird's life, like mid-flight. <laughs> that, that was one of those things that, like, I... Like a video I had saved to my computer because I illegally downloaded it off of whatever fucking site, and I was like, "I need this. I need this video because it's great." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And it was. And I wish I could have been there in the stands in Tucson to watch that. That bird, that that pigeon was vaporized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nuked. <laughs> Rest in peace. I know, right? Um. <laughs> Anyhow, all right, so um, what else can we talk about this team? Um, should, should we just dive in the playoffs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, is, is, there, is there anything memorable from the, the regular well, season that you guys I in? will say this, actually. Um, it kind of prefaced to, to the preseason, uh, pardon me, the postseason. I know as Diamondbacks fans, and James agrees with me here, we love to hate on Byung Young Kim. We love to hate on him a lot. But people forget he was a he he, I, he was a amazing closer oh. uh, that season and subsequent seasons he was really good. He was good for the Red Sox as well. He was yeah. he was an amazing pitcher. Period. I yeah. he, he got used as a closer here for most of the time, and that was the role he should have stuck with. But he had some really bad advisors whispering in his ear that. If he ever wanted to get a real payday, or if he ever wanted to get any notoriety, he had to be a starting pitcher. And so he continually fought tooth and nail with the powers that be to give him an opportunity to be a starter. And that finally happened his last partial season here in Arizona before we did trade him to the Red Sox. Um, but I mean, if you look at his numbers, especially in that 2001 season, on a per rate basis, he was neck and neck with RJ in terms of sheer dominance of going up and striking out everybody and making them look stupid. 
the the ability to limit damage no matter how many people were on when he came in the his ability to limit walks even when he got wild i mean he was an amazing arm and you know the diamondbacks don't even sniff the even sniff the playoffs without kim I'm curious because as an outsider looking in on the 2001 Diamondbacks, I I remember Yang Hyun Kim vividly, maybe because of his throwing style and all that. But I remember him very positively. Why Why do you guys like to hate on Yang Hyun Kim? Some well, some like to hate on him because of the two back to back meltdowns in in the World Series later that year, and others remember how he kind of. He went from being an elite closer who could have had a 15-year career doing that and putting up dominant numbers and probably would have spent his whole career in Arizona and helped them through some lean years where bullpens were one of our biggest problems and kind of forced his way out of town with this whole, I need to be a starter, I need to be a starter, I need to be a starter. Diamondbacks didn't have any use for him as a starter, especially because as a starter, he was somewhere between a number three starter on a good day and a long relief on a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, wanted, they wanted him to be a closer. And so the way he kind of worked his way out of town, it didn't do the Diamondbacks any favors at all. Yeah. Well, and, and building into James' point, like I'm – because I'm more that crowd that remembers him for – what he did during that series and and looking back i can respect what he did during the regular season and the subsequent regular seasons after that as a closer and a lot of diamondbacks fans have this memory of like we in my opinion had he not blown those two saves in the world series we could have closed out the yankees in five easily in five and granted it was a great series at seven we all remember how it went to seven but you know, there was those two implosions by him in five. And it, it's really not, you know, looking back, and now that I, I have this ability to look back, it it's unfair to say that that's, you know, his fault or anything. He was a great closer. He was a very good closer. Um, and the first implosion wasn't even really much of an implosion. I mean, Scott yeah. Brocious had yeah. a hold of one. And mm-hmm. Brocious was able to, get a hold of one and put it in the seats because Roches had already faced him once earlier in the game because he wasn't a one-inning closer. And Roches remembered what the pitch looked like and he had hooked it foul deep, you know, down the line, but it had gone foul. But he remembered what the pitch looked like coming, so he was waiting for that pitch again. Well, in today's game... Nobody sees a closer twice, not unless you bat around in the ninth. And then that case, he's probably still been run from the game already. Kim was in the game long enough to face hitters on the opposite team twice, and he wasn't giving up runs in that time. <laughs> and then Brocious yep. got him. And then the very next game, it was just, what? Um, wow. Back to back. So I, I guess we're kind of going into the playoffs already. <laughs> You're so sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that it's great to set it up that way too. So, if, do we want to do we want to dive right now into the playoffs? 
maybe the toughest series outside of the World Series? Um, well, it was certainly the tougher of the series. Um, was the Cardinals. Yeah. The, I think a big thing about the series against the Cardinals is that the Cardinals just had the right com- combination of hitters that matched up well against the pitching Arizona had. And the Cardinals came into the series knowing that they just had to survive Johnson and Schilling and get into the bullpen or get into a game that they didn't start. And they would be in the driver's seat in those cases. I mean, you're looking at Brian Anderson starting games or, you know, Albie Lopez, who they acquired at the deadline. He's not a great, he was a, He's an okay pitcher. I'm no teams are gonna fall over themselves trying to get him, but I mean he was a above league average pitcher. But you weren't wanting to turn to him in the playoffs and say, carry our team to victory. He's the guy that you're like, please don't blow it before the fourth inning. <laughs> um so with the deep offense that the Cardinals had, they matched up very well against the Diamondbacks. And the Diamondbacks were not a potent offense by any means. So Arizona's inability to score at will really made it so Johnson and Schilling kind of had to carry all the water, and that's just a tall order. (laughs) It's interesting you bring up that the Diamondbacks weren't a potent offensive team because I think this is going to be a theme the rest of, of the World Series. We, we know that this is how this played out. I mean, you had Luis Gonzalez as an elite, elite hitter, Reggie Sanders, Mark Grace, and then everyone else after that is like kind of averagey. Well, that whole team was a whole bunch of really average guys and then a few studs. And that's, you know, it's a team that in today's game has no business winning games. Uh, yep. And it, like I was talking earlier, it wasn't quite stars and scrubs, but it was a, a step above that. You had Johnson, Schiller, you had the elite bat and gone. So uh, Sanders for that one season, I mean, he was still an above average player. Uh, Steve Finley was his very, Steve Finley had a typical Steve Finley year. He was a borderline all-star, but he was nothing tremendous he wasn't a, uh he wasn't a talent yeah. you could yeah. build around by any means and then you had kim at the back end of the bullpen who could turn any game you know if he was rusted he could turn any baseball game into a six inning game and outside of that you everybody else's job was just keep us in it and they managed to do that enough times i mean once we get to the World Series, we'll see that they actually did score a lot, but that was kind of fluky. Well, especially in Game Six, which was weird. Well, yeah, but even <laughs> without that, I mean, we the the the, the Diamondbacks outscored the Yankees in that series by a landslide. Even if you pull Game Six out, the 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 end score of the series was not actually all that close. Yeah. But and you're absolutely right. Like there wasn't, there, there wasn't like a lot of standout players that could consistently get you something. There was just like a handful of guys that you were consistently expecting something out of them. Everyone else was like a bonus. 
and that's how it was with them. And they and the reason why it worked is that they had such dominant pitching, and such a solid like bullpen that it just worked out great. I mean, if you go, James. Mm-hmm. Oh no, uh, ba- baseball kind of is that way. I mean, like you you need those guys that are league average. You know, you got to fill fill the lineup with those guys. If if you can have a few elite guys and then a few league average guys can win a lot of games when you've got the pitching that the Diamondbacks had in 2001, you know, um, it, it's, it's when you get into lineups that have the black hole in seven, eight, nine in the lineup that, that, you know, kills the offense. But it, it, this is a perfect example of, of a team that had two legit aces that could be stopper, stopper, and then hope, hopefully you win one of the next three games. And that's a, you know, you win three out of five games, you're going to be a really good team. Mm-hmm. You uh, and so four, it was four of the seven, only four of the 17 games that postseason got over eight runs, which nowadays is just ludicrous because every over under set between somewhere between eight and a half and nine and a half or or higher. And it's just, right. it's it sums up that, you know, and, and go back to the first series we were just talking about. The two game shilling pitch, there were a total of four runs in two games. Yep. And that 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 probably sums up partly it it set up for the rest of the postseason for the Diamondbacks, but it just sums up how dominant shilling was and also probably how not great the offense was, but it could do just enough to get the wins. And and also it goes to our previous conversation, just like as much as we like to hate on shilling, um in the postseason, his numbers are silly. His oh, numbers are silly. <laughs> yeah, they're insane. Like, uh, granted, like Bumgartner on this current team, obviously way way over the hill. Uh, but I don't. And someone can quote me, uh, correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure Bumgartner, his postseason numbers are not even close to Schilling's. Oh, definitely not. No, no, not 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 total postseason. Schilling might be the single most dominant postseason pitcher at least since the 80s yeah i, I can't speak yeah. to before that but when it comes to total postseason resume i can't think of anybody who is a more dominant game in game out and it goes back to his ability i mean he was allowing like one point something walks every nine yeah. innings and yep. combining that with anywhere from nine to 16 strikeouts and the ability to throw 125 pitches in order to get into the eighth inning if he had to, or to come pitch a complete game if he really had to, you know, he was a workhorse and didn't let any, just didn't ever let up. And it's funny how I how I forget about him, you know, as a young fan of the time. He was super dominant. He, you know, in, in, in the playoffs, and he was super dominant in that playoffs. And as we, we automatically think of Randy Johnson. We forget about just how great he was. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's just because of his demeanor or just how he pitched, but, I mean, that's, you know, that season, uh, actually, I think they were neck and neck on wins. Uh, I probably have, have it here somewhere. Uh, on the regular season, but you know that season and during the postseason, they were just as good. I mean, they were just as dominant. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was the next season that Kurt Schilling put up Cy Young numbers, and the only reason he didn't win was RJ because mm -hmm. those two, and RJ was clearly the better pitcher, which was kind of a bummer for Schilling because he was head and shoulders better than every other pitcher in baseball other than his teammate. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so starting off, starting off with the DS, like, Okay. Talk, talk us through the the playoffs, like just beginning. Only talking DS now. The biggest thing I remember from the 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 division series, other than the almost fluky Tony Womack double that really changed the series at the end, is that. All the talk was about Mark McGuire this, Mark McGuire that, Mark McGuire being such a, a threat. And the reality was the Diamondbacks had Mark McGuire's number three, knew exactly where to throw him, and were making him look kind of silly on a pretty regular basis. The guy that kept killing us, both at the plate and in the field, was Jim Edmonds. And he was the guy, every time he came to the plate, you're like, no, no. Bring up McGuire again. Go ahead. Bring us back. Bring us <laughs> McGuire. Jim Edmonds refused to swing at the slot that anybody not named Schilling was throwing up there. And when he did put bat on the ball, it was hard hit, and he found gaps, and he was a thorn in the team's side. And it was just one of those you kept worrying every time the lineup was turning over that Edmonds was going to blow this game open because – you knew the Diamondbacks weren't going to have a big rally in them anywhere. And so it was all about the get through the Maguire. That's a strikeout. Get through Edmonds. Okay, now we can coast a little bit, but we still have to be careful. But he was, he was the guy that really made that series seem difficult. I mean, I remember um, just, you know, all the hype around the Diamondbacks, just how it seemed like we should have been able to cruise through that series. And obviously we didn't. You know, it went to the fifth game, and it was a lot closer than what we thought it should be. Uh, I think, I mean, just looking back, I mean, I guess we, we were just not too far away from, you know, not having this World Series win at all because of that series. Because, uh, I mean, obviously we cruised through, uh, the Braves uh, pretty e easily, and it was definitely the Cardinals that just gave us the biggest scare you know, up until the uh, Yankees there. Um, that's just my takeaway. So let's let's hone in on Game Five because obviously all in that first series, all four games were somewhat close. A couple five three four one, but I mean you know, every game was close. And then Game Five, Matt Morris against. Kurt Schilling repeated game one, which was a one nothing game. Mm -hmm. And they both go at least eight innings. Just talk Just through talk. the ups and downs and uh, Chris and John, Chris and I don't John. know about you, but I still remember watching this game and just part of part of the reason just the pitching matchup was unbelievable at the time. And what do you guys remember from game five of that year? I remember during game five thinking, this is why we really need another hitter somewhere in the line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was just one of those frustrating kind of matchups where 
after having watched the team all season long and being well aware of the streaky nature of some of the the team's regular players, it was one of those by the every time we got to the number four or five slot in our lineup, it was more about let's hope somebody else in the lineup does something because we're really waiting for the top of the lineup to come around again to try and put something together. Well, when you're facing Matt Morris on his game, that might be two more, you know, two more innings in the books already, not one inning, one and a half innings. You know, it might be the fourth inning before you get your second look. It might be the fifth, you know, too much of the game was going by and we just weren't doing anything. And I kept worrying that, you know, they'd give Gonzo the Barry Bonds treatment late in the game and we would suddenly have no offensive threat to try and break through. It was going to come down to a role player, and that's actually what eventually happened. Is a role player came up big finally. And I get, I guess, even before that, if you're just thinking as a D backs fan, you had chilling rolling through seven innings, you're up one nothing. JD Drew, JD Drew comes to bat in the eighth and suddenly ties, and all of a sudden, you go from a game that you guys were dominating to all of a sudden you're tied and now you're relying on who's going to win this for us. And that was always kind of the problem with the Johnson and Schilling years. It's both of those pitchers, their entire time in the desert, it was a lot of one nothing and 2 nothing games, and that was always the stressor when watching those games. I mean, we enjoyed watching them dominate. We enjoyed the ride, but... In the back of the mind, you always knew that these guys don't have zero ERAs. These guys have a, you know, a two-something ERA. That means at some point in this game, somebody is likely to come up with a score somehow. A, 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 a little blooper followed by, you know, get them, a, a get them on, get them over, get them in. Or you ran into one and poked it over the fence, these things happen, and that's how, you know, a random run scores. And it was always in the back of the head. It's like, eventually these guys are going to score something. And it was watching the Diamondbacks being unable to get even one insurance run to take the pressure off, to make it so, oh, hey, Drew got that, 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 that big blast, but we're still in the driver's seat, and now we can bring in Kim if we have to. But you know, it was it was kind of nuts. <laughs> so, so talk, and I I think for the common fan, go through the ninth inning. Cause everyone remembers the ninth inning of Game Seven of the World Series, but not the ninth inning game five of the NLDS, which is equally as important in the long run. Go ahead, Patrick. No, actually, I'm going to leave it to you because I was oh. – I remember a single part of that. <laughs> I, was, I, I don't remember either. So. I was the, the, the biggest thing I remember <laughs> is, the, is, of course, the big hit by Tony yeah. Walmart 
The walk off, um, yeah. It was it was one of those things where it had almost come down to this is probably going to go to extra innings and we're going to have to find a way to to chip something away at their, you know, at their bullpen and hope that ours just can hold serve. Uh, because clearly Schilling was kind of done. I mean, he had done his job, no doubt, but he wasn't going to be able to carry us any further. And there being here in Phoenix, we're used to always coming up just a little bit short. So there was going yep. to that ninth inning, they're like, okay, how are we going to screw this up? Because <laughs> that was it was just inevitable. We were going to find a way to screw this up after we had come so far. And then kind of out of nowhere, Womack just hooks this shot into you know the outfield and puts on a display with his speed that that was his one tool is he was fast and it's like but wait you mean we might actually win this in <laughs> <laughs> and so then it became a matter of you just you, just, you know my mate and I we were just like sitting there doing everything we could to not jinx it <laughs> it was just a matter of we're just going to sit here and shut up and let this play out and hope that something good happens. So, so, so Matt, it's interesting to me. You, you you said both pitchers, Morris and Schilling, went eight plus. Yeah. Yeah. In, yes. In the in the context of the you know today's game, like I think any one of us would have been saying like, oh well. That's a dominant start. That's an amazing start by the starting pitcher. Like, we nobody would be putting anything on the starter at this point. Like, oh, they did their job. If they won, if they lost, it would be like almost bad luck at that point. You know what I mean? It's crazy how yeah. the game has changed in twenty years. I mean, Morris only got pulled because he threw one thirty. So at that point, yeah. he was <laughs> they left to the bullpen, and that's when. <laughs> Cards used two pitches in the ninth, and Klein couldn't hold on, and Womack blooped that single and or double whatever he ended up at, but uh, to end it. I think we... that hit by Womack turned most of Arizona from being excited that we were in the playoffs and enjoying the ride into being real believers that this team actually had World Series champion potential. I think it was one of those, like I said, a lot of us kept expecting the other shoe to drop and for the backs to say, hey, at least we went through the LDS again. We, we, we've done this playoff thing before and we're going to do the playoff thing for you a couple more times but don't actually ever expect us to to win it all but then that <laughs> hit from one of the more unlikely of candidates kind of made believers out of a lot of fans that hey there is just enough other talent on this roster that 
if if RJ and Schilling do what they can do, a seven game series. That was the other thing. Cardinals was a five game series. A seven game series, you suddenly have RJ and Schilling can go four to five of those games, depending on how the schedule shakes itself out. You've got to like your chances then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And which definitely worked out in our favor. <laughs> the, the fitting thing, looking back, the Womack hit wasn't that much different than the Gonzalez hit in game seven. I mean, Womack got a little more on it, but it was still a jam shot to the uh, yeah to to opposite field. It's a more that Womack got to second on it when Gonzalez barely got to first. That's more the <laughs> speed of Womack, but they're similar hits. But yeah, I'm like it made believers, and it really kind of. I think it really set the tone for the the LCS against the Braves where, hey, we just took the best shot that the Cardinals could give us, and they were a better team than you guys. Mm. And we took it and we beat them. You don't stand a chance. And it helped that for whatever reason, the Diamondbacks played against Greg Maddox well their entire coexistence. Maddox rarely pitched well against the Diamondbacks, no matter what Diamondbacks team was on the field. And that held true that year as well. They just, there was no fear facing Greg Maddox. But there was still fear from the other team facing Johnson and Schilling. That's not a sentence that's super common. No fear Facing Greg Maddox. Exactly. <laughs> they went they were able to go into the Greg Maddox game going, We got this. Now, he still pitched well, and it's not like it was a cakewalk, but there wasn't that intimidation factor working in his favor that he had for however many of his other three hundred plus victories and <laughs> you know, I feel like it as a baseball fan watching however many years of playoffs, like the team that wins tends to have some of those moments where you're like, damn, this is the team of destiny. Like this happened. Like, how did that even happen? You know what I mean? Like the baseball gods just have to smile upon some of these teams sometimes, you know, do you feel like that is um, something that happened a few times during this run? Um, I, I think so a little bit. I think the, the Womack hit was probably the biggest part of that, but there were there were times, especially uh, once we get to the World Series uh, game one, uh, where that really kind of stands out again. Uh, the team, the regular season, there wasn't a whole lot of the destiny thing going on because it was just. We got two dominant pitchers, and they're going to give it, between the two of them. They're going to be responsible for forty something wins, and we're going to get another twenty through just bullpen games that everybody gets. Well, we're already up to sixty of our eighty something wins. You know, it wasn't terribly difficult for the Diamondbacks to actually reach the playoffs. the The real challenge came when. Okay, now we're going to face for a five or seven game series another quality team. And so I think that Womack 
hit there in game five was probably the first real sign of that we may have something really special going on. Uh, I mean, granted, it was later in the series. Of course, it was in the World Series. But um, for me, it was when uh, Randy came in for relief uh, in the World Series. <laughs> uh, that was a wild moment. Um, I still can't believe that that happened, but it was perfect that it did happen. Uh, that just, uh, granted, I, I was actually working at AJ's at the time uh, when that actually happened. I was about to leave my shift uh, like 15 minutes later, uh, but I remember like my manager like telling me about it. I'm like, I'm like no shit, like he's coming in to like to throw again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in the blowout game before that. Um, yep. Brentley had approached him in the dugout and asked him about coming out of the game. And RJ didn't want to. He's like, no, I need, I, I really need you to because I'm going to need you to go tomorrow. And RJ's like, if you're pitching me tomorrow, I'll come out. Otherwise, don't even talk to me about it. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact about game six of the World Series, I was actually out hunting um, deer up in northern Arizona. I remember listening to that game uh, on the radio, uh, just us blowing them out. I, I did get my deer, just in case <laughs> anyone's like wondering. Um, but yeah, I remember listening to that game on the radio, just how much of like a blowout it was, and that was just yeah, like a fond memory of mine. Like on my first mule deer hunt, I was sixteen. Um, we're you know up in northern Arizona, outside of Williams, and listening to the Diamondbacks like dismantle the, the Yankees. Was it sixteen to two or fifteen to two? It was not a close game. It it, it was a route, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was a. Uh, yeah, and, and the relief the relief pitcher who comes in to finally just like staunch the bleeding gives up nine and in an inning and a third or something like that. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I, I love hearing these uh, um, anecdotes from where you were when certain things happened because, that, I mean, that's how I've always experienced baseball. You say you were uh, I was out hunting deer doing, the, doing this thing, and I was 10 years old on my parents' couch watching this, and I remember this. I remember when Randy Johnson came in in relief. I, I remember being a 10-year-old and acknowledging how crazy that was because the announcers were talking about it, you know, like I, I love the perspective from everybody else because I, I, I get to hear, I don't know. I get to see a different perspective, but it's always like kind of similar. Like I was here when this happened, you know? Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. No, I, I just remember when he came in, um, I was at the, uh, the, uh, uh, the grocery store <laughs> and just, like I, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, those, those, those Yankee batters are probably expecting something different. <laughs> I imagine, <laughs> I imagine them just like, oh shit. <laughs> James, uh, most of my, the rest of my memories from the playoffs revolve around the World Series. The LCS kind of went. And- came and went in a blink. I mean, the, it was never a competitive series. Uh, you know, 
the the Diamondbacks rolled through, took care of business, and then went, you know, is on to the Yankees. Um, I was actually at my father's house having a family dinner when Game of the World Series uh, kicked off. And I convinced Dad to go ahead and throw the game on the television. And I remember we were excited that it was the Yankees and not the Mariners because even though the Mariners won 116 games and were the best team in baseball during regular season, this was the Yankees. This was the dynasty team. This was baseball history on the, you know, in the other dugout. Not this was the good team this year. It, 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 so it was. It, it was definitely about the prestige of this is the Yankees, and the Yankees jumped out and took that quick lead in the first. You know, in the first inning, it's like, oh damn, that's what it's like to play the Yankees in the World Series, and it was one of those. Well. This was a nice run. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, once again, growing up in Phoenix, you're kind of conditioned that way anyway, you know, because we just don't win in Phoenix. We, we always come up just short. But at the time, the Yankees were the team that kept crushing people in the playoffs. They were the team that had that, the three-peats and, the, you know, and so forth. And it was Ariana. And it was one of those Craig Council comes up to the plate in the bottom of the first with his funky bat hanging way back behind his butt, swinging it around, arching <laughs> doing the contortion thing in the batter's box. And then the suddenly he ever. just swoops it down and drops it through the strike zone. Like he's swinging a sword and he loops a game tying home run. He had like 10 all season, maybe. I don't even know if he had that many. It's not like Craig Counts. Craig Counts is the kind of guy you could hit the ball twice to get it out of the park, kind of guy. <laughs> and here he is on the bottom of the first, down one against the Yankees, and suddenly, oops, it's a tie game. The, and that was the other hit that I really felt like. This is one of those, we have something, there's something on our side here. You know, the Womack hit in game five of the, the LDS, the council home run to say that we're not going to roll over. We're not going to play dead. We're here to, we're here to compete. This is, this is exactly you what took, I was... you took our You took our guy, you know, you got, you got your one off our guy. That's all you're going to get, though. So now what are you going to do? And this is... that changed the tempo of that game. And once the Diamondbacks walked away with the game, a victory in game one, there was no telling any, there was no convincing anyone that the Diamondbacks didn't have the horses to win that series. I love that. This is this is kind of exactly what I'm talking about. You have those moments where you're like, "Oh shit, this team can this team can win," you know, um, and especially against this Yankees team. Can we talk about this Yankees team for like a minute? 
because this <laughs> is the Yankees team that I. We have to. Yeah. When, when, <laughs> no, no, we do because because this is the Yankees team that I remember from from my youth as like, oh, this is the team. This had Jeter and Posada, and this had, you know, et cetera. Um, Mariano. Mariano, Bernie, Alfonso Soriano. This is a powerhouse team. Oh, yeah. They were a team team that should have been winning plenty of World Series. Yep. And there were were Hall of Fame talents on that team. There were further borderline Hall of Famers. You know, some people think Andy Pettit belongs in the Hall. Others think he just misses. I Mike Lucina was on that team. To me, he is a Hall of Fame talent. Uh, but then you have Jeter. I mean, he was a no doubt Hall of Fame talent. Mariano Rivera, no doubt Hall of Fame talent. Roger Clemens, even before the juice thing, he was a a, a, a talented pitcher. I mean, Boston made a mistake when they ran him out of town. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The dot team was stacked with talent that had legitimate cases to be on Hall of Fame ballots, and it wasn't just one player. It was four or five players that, you know, there's a reason Bernie Williams didn't go away the first time around. There's a reason, you know, Pettit got several, you know, Pettit keeps getting talked about. There's a re, you know, and we've seen that Posada didn't just go away right away, you know. These guys weren't necessarily Hall of Famers, but they at least put themselves in the conversation, and they were all playing at the same time. <laughs> nope. No, we definitely went up against one of the better teams, too. I don't know if I've seen a more stacked team than that Yankees team, unless I go all the way back to the big red machine in the 70s to find a team that just had that much impact Top of the top tier talent, all on one team at one time. So after, go ahead, Chris. If you're going to say something. No, I, Patrick. Do you have anything to add to James' comments? I mean, like going going in that series, like the the Yankees were like the team, um, and it seemed absurd. Uh, for us to even beat that team, and then even see more absurd for us to be, beat that team because of not of not of nine eleven. There's so much focus around like New York for obvious reasons with what happened, and it, it just seemed like we didn't have a chance, in, at least in my mind, as we were going up against the the team of the aggrieved and rightfully so aggrieved like New York City. Um, that had gone through so much in those last like few months. Um, so all of that just seems stacked against us, in my opinion, you know, looking back at my mind frame at the time. And for us to have really shown up uh, in those first two games and really kind of like asserted, like, we're going to be, like, this is not going to be like a rollover series, was impressive to me. Um, and, and like I said, like from early in the podcast, like, I really think, you know, outside of some, you know, two bad performances from BK Kim, that we probably could have won the series in five. In fact, we probably should have won the series in five. Uh, and I'm going seven. Um, but that's, you know, we're going to talk about it more. 
Um, that's just kind of my feeling going into the series. Like it just seems like the Yankees were the team of destiny, you know, not just because of, you know, who they were and the plays that they had, but because of what had happened during that time frame. And one of the things that shocked me at the time, and it's still a little surprising to me now, we talked about it a little bit earlier, is that this was nine, you know, this was right after 9-11. I happened to have scheduled a vacation with my best mate and one of our friends to go to a resort down uh, in Mexico. And it happened to be the weekend after 9-11. And so we wound up pushing it back a little bit and going down a couple of days later. And our second night there is the first night that baseball resumed play. And that happened while we were there on vacation. The bar next door to the resort we were staying in had a huge baseball fan for the bartender. And when the restaurant business all went away and he could kind of loosen up for the night he would flip all the signs that were behind the bar and they were all diamondbacks license plates and logos you know logo banners and stuff like that he was a huge diamondbacks fan and come to find out the entire staff was were diamondbacks fans now of course being down in mexico makes them you know closer to arizona so there's some ties geographically and there are probably some family ties as well but the number of people that were tourists from the states the number of foreigners that were invested in baseball all of them were on the side of the diamondbacks despite all these things that happened in new york and that it was the yankees playing they were still rooting for the diamondbacks to win these games now, this wasn't the playoffs yet, but I mean, they were huge Diamondbacks fans in Yankees game. They were on television and nobody cared. <laughs> when it came time for the World Series, it was amazing how many fans there were supporting the Diamondbacks, given the storybook narrative that was starting to play out. Yep. I think that was probably the most important thing about the World Series 9-11, is that it was all framed in what was going on there. Yes, well, you know, we had the Diamondbacks. You know, as a Diamondbacks fan, like, yes, you know, it was our first World Series, the World Series was the one, but more importantly, from a historical perspective, like, that's where it was framed in, is that well, event. Yeah, I mean, even the Diamondbacks took time out after their, on their first day here to do the tour of Yep. No, oh, the 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 site and the whole, you know, nobody could get upset that Bush was playing favorites that year, and he's like, no, 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 I'm not throwing out the first pitch till the series gets to New York. He's like, yeah, we get it, you know. It's like it was almost a a gut reaction just naturally to defer to anything that would help uplift New York or paint New York in a good light. You wanted you wanted New York and New Yorkers to succeed and that was just the gut gut reaction. And here we were 
but we want you to lose the World Series because, well, they're right. You know, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was a really weird feeling because it was one of those, how upset am I going to be if the Yankees actually win this year? It was one of those, I knew I'd be upset because once again, we'd be playing second fiddle after, you know, the Suns had already lost in the finals twice, you know. The Cardinals had never yet had a good season. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't want to be second place, but it was one of those, if we come in second place, is that actually the worst thing in the yeah. world? <laughs> exactly. It's competing against this hatred for the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. <laughs> no, it, it definitely was. And and it it's that kind of thing. And just like James said, like, you know, how would I have felt if the Yankees won? Like, would have been like, okay, you know, this is, you know, their moment because of what happened. And it's just funny to think about that because any other year, we've been like, fuck them. But this, that one year, it just changed everything. Um, so, like, obviously, I'm happy that the uh, Timebacks won, but I think there would have been some room at the time me to be not so upset had that that not happen. Yeah, I'm clearly I I'm glad we won and I wouldn't have it any other way. I just don't think that the heartbreak would have been as palpable that year. It would have been especially if it had gone into seven, you know, having gone seven games is like, hey, we gave them a real run for their money. We probably didn't belong there to begin with. Yeah, we gave we took this monster team of Hall of Fame talent to seven games, and then they lifted up the city of New York the way they were supposed to. With, with that said, can you talk to us about uh, Game Seven? Um, I'm just glad that my doctor didn't read my blood pressure anytime then. Or- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it was it was kind of a crazy bit. You felt like the Diamondbacks kind of had something going, especially after that big blowout. But then there was, oh, I think it was Reggie Sanders, but it might have been Bautista trying to stretch a, a double into a triple getting thrown out and it was one of those it was it was plays like that early in the game you're like there's just something feels off about the way the game was playing out mm-hmm. it wasn't after the after cruising the victory in game six game seven was way harder than it should have been or at least it felt like it was harder than it should have been. And it was little things like getting thrown out when he probably should have just played it safe and smart. Uh, I have a uh, question. Was... Mm-hmm. Uh, see, Diamondbacks went up 2-0 in that series, but they went down 3-2 because they lost games 3-4 and 5. Right. Were you, were you worried? How did you feel about that at the end of game five? 
at the end of game five, it was I, I know I was, my mate was, we were more angry than anything else because of the way two of those those two games ended against Kim. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't even so much angry with Kim as the situation, just finding ourselves in that situation. Like, we haven't had the opportunity to do the same thing to Mo yet. Mm-hmm. And it was, if this is how it's going to go, we're going to go out, it's going to be kind of, it, it was going to be one of those, it was going to be annoying because it's like we had the series in hand being up 2-0. And it suddenly felt like there was a real chance we could lose the whole thing in six games if we didn't pull our heads up and say, hey, we do belong here. And that's exactly what they did. Like game six, Paddock was on the mound, and it didn't matter. Paddock was on the mound, RJ was on the mound, and RJ continued to do his thing, but it didn't matter who the Yankees put on the mound that night. The Diamondbacks came back to Arizona, and the Arizona crowd was absolutely amazing. And you wouldn't know it to watch a Diamondbacks game now where they can't pay people to get into the stands. <laughs> right. God damn it. Chase Field is one of the largest seating capacity stadiums in all of baseball. And, and that's been one of the when the team is good, it's really worked to their benefit because they can act that way with so many fans. And those fans get wild. But when the team's going bad, then you've got all these empty seats that fans from the other team gobble up and it's like playing an away game at home. But I mean, it held, it, at the time, it held almost 49,000 people. And that's a lot of seats for a baseball field. And they were selling standing room on the concourse for those games. So when they came back to Arizona and you were taking your life in your own hands being a Yankees fan, not named John Gambadoro in in Phoenix, Ah. uh, there was, you know, that place absolutely helped lift that team and they got behind their Diamondbacks and when the Diamondbacks started to pour it on it just became it it, it just it, it it snowballed and that was the whole yep okay we really do still belong here and game seven is ours this is our house and we've just proven it for the third time this series <laughs> that you're just not going to beat us here. Yep. Talk through the obviously no scoring. You got Clemens against Schilling. You got two of the best of the last <laughs> two of the best ever if you, if you put it bluntly. And just talk through that game as much you guys remember as it goes because obviously a lot happens in the sixth inning onward but just that you know, it's game seven. It's it's uh it's butt clenching time across both fan bases and you know, it's 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 what everyone tries to play for. It's game seven of the World Series and you have your guy on the mound on short rest, but you have your guy on the mound. I think the big thing was the deeper it got into the game, 
the rougher it got to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Because, as we've pointed out repeatedly, that Yankees team was stacked. And it was one of those just kept waiting for them to get that one big hit that was going to put them up one nothing or 2 nothing or, you know, all it started the deeper so went the more it felt like one or two runs was going to be enough to to do this to do us in and kept wondering well the diamondbacks just aren't scoring they you know they used magic to get out of the LDS they used magic to get back into it in game one they used a whole lot of magic in game six to put you know that big hurting on after losing some heartbreaking games how much magic do they have left in the tank when they're going up against Clemens, who at the time was arguably the most dominant right-handed pitcher in baseball? Like I said, I was working, like literally working that night, which drove me crazy. <laughs> um, in fact, I had uh, requested off for that night. I couldn't get it off. <laughs> I was so pissed off because uh, I wanted to watch that game. So I just, you know, ended up ducking into the manager's office like every like 10 minutes to still like listen to everything. And it it just seemed like we had a great opportunity uh, with, with Schindler pitching, but that we didn't have anything else going for us. And it was going to be razor thin margins, which it ended up being razor thin margins. Um. Obviously, any moment away from winning, but also losing, and he gives up that home run. Just talk about the moment, and was it a gut punch, or was it like, okay, we'll get we'll get this back. We still got time. Um, for me, being working, you know, when I didn't want to work, it was yeah. a gut punch. Uh, I I'm pretty sure I was standing right next to my manager like when it happened, and I was convinced that everything was over. Like, granted, I was a young kid. Everything just seemed like it was over. Um, and that's just kind of where my, my mindset was at, but I was still, you know, optimistic enough to that, you know, maybe if I get home and, you know, things will change or whatever, but that's just kind of what hit me. I was, for me, it was a real gut punch because I knew Mo was going to be coming out and his track record to that point was, well, impeccable and. He had plenty of good years after that too. So yeah, uh, but it was it was something of a gut punch. Uh, my best mate, he was less heartbroken, but at the same time, he was preparing himself for us drinking the rest of the night instead of celebrating the rest of the night. And then we both realized who what part of the batting order was going to be coming up in the ninth. And we both like, you know, this game's not over yet. <laughs> and RJ, RJ had to come on to finish off the eighth, right? Well, everybody in Arizona pretty much knew that RJ was going to be pitching in that game. That was the reason he <laughs> get. It was the reason he'd gotten pulled early the previous night was so that there would be bullets left in his arm and life left in that arm for him to pitch in game seven. And he started warming up in the late fourth inning. They 
kept panning the camera over there, and there's RJ. He's warming up. Nobody expected him to be ready to pitch again today. It's like, yeah, nobody except everybody that lives in Arizona that knows that this guy <laughs> is at the fountain. So. <laughs> Yeah, he was not going to let this moment. Yeah, he, this moment was going to be his. And so it was one of those. Schilling did his job. RJ came in, and we knew that RJ had at least two or three innings in him. So it was one of those. Okay, as long as we find a way to make something, anything happen, this game might still go our way. It's it's amazing he threw 104. Like think think nowadays he threw 104 the night before. Nowadays you'd be done at least three days, and he literally yeah exactly yeah exactly just not even thought about it. <laughs> done. And as you guys said, everyone in Arizona knew he was pitching at some point that night. Yeah, and it, it was one of those. They they showed him doing the long toss and stuff like that. It's like, okay, is that just for show? But it's like we all knew that he was at least going to try and come in. But then by the time he was finishing his warm-up, everybody knew that the real RJ was still there because you could still hear that popping of the catcher's mitt. Even though there were 49,000 screaming yeah. fans, he that loud. I just threw it up there at ninety four. <laughs> you know, ninety seven <laughs> on his fastball. He 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 was letting it fly and like, okay, yeah, he's coming. He's coming to to kick ass and take names. So we get to the ninth, and I I'm gonna pause and just say, talk us through the ninth from. Mark Grace onward. Uh, I think most of myself, and then I, I think most people forget you guys were down in that inning. Everyone just remembers the the final hit, but there was there was work to get done just to get to that point. So I, I'll I'll literally just turn it over to you guys and just talk through that ninth, starting with Mark Grace leading off the inning. Mark Grace leading off the inning is the reason my friend and I both realized that there's still something left in this game. And even Grace talked about it a couple times later on that once he went into the into the uh, announcement booth, Mark Grace knew that his job was get his ass on base, come hell or high water. And if he had to lean into a pitch and take one off the dome or off the wrist, that's what he was going to do. There was no way he was going to go back to the dugout without having gone to first base first. And that was kind of the guy he was in Chicago for all those years. He was always the guy that when you wanted to get somebody on base, he's who you wanted coming up. Well, we needed to get a run. Getting a base runner was the most important thing to start with because we needed a run just to tie things up. And here we had the most money guy, even better than Gonzo, when it really came to, if I need to get on base, he's the guy you want to dig in, and that's exactly what he did. He he went in there, he found his pitch, he dug it out, and got things started. After that, it was kind of 
it was kind of cathartic to watch Mo have his own mental issues, his own troubles from the mound, very similar to what BK had in New York. If Mariano Rivera could just throw a straight baseball, the Yankees probably still win that series. But he can't throw from the mound to first base without the thing still being a cutter. And and suddenly the Diamondbacks have got, you know, or actually I guess he was trying to throw a second. Anyway, he but he, you know, he missed his mark. Suddenly instead of being an, you know an easy out to get the lead runner, now you got now the Diamondbacks have got something going. And you you can see that Mariano is not the same Mr. Automatic that he had been at so many other points in his career. You could see the frayed edges the same on him as you could on Kim when Kim got lit up the second night in a row. It was it was very clear that these were two teams that they both had an absolute stud at the end of the bull, at, at the end of their bullpen. And both had to come to grips with the idea that even these guys fail once in a while. I feel like that's a, such a key a key point in the context of this inning is that we're talking about maybe the best closer ever, maybe the person who has the most Probably. dominant Probably. pitch ever. Yeah. Absolutely. And like I said, it was all about Mark Grace starting it off. Then they brought in Midre Cummings to pin Toronto. And it was like a guy who had absolutely no business being on the 25-man the roster, who was <laughs> the last man added to the roster. And everybody's like, and Arizona's like, why the hell is Midre Cummings on this roster at all? Well, it turns out he was there because he could run really fast. <laughs> Everybody expected it was going to be Junior Spivey that got the call, and Spivey kind of got screwed because he really did belong on that team. But Vidre uh, uh, Cummings gets brought in to do his running. Dave DeLucci is the actual one that gets the running done, though, because Cummings fails at what he was on the team for. <laughs> and in still down one, but two on, but in comes the hero from the NLDS, Tony Womack. Womack. God bless Womack. Future <laughs> Cardinal Tony Womack. Yeah. Future many other teams, Tony yeah. Womack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Name the teams he haven't hasn't played for. <laughs> Probably shorter lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All his, his passport has been stamped quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um that was the that was the big one. As soon as Tony Womack stepped in, like, well, he did have the one big hit, and at the time, the he didn't even need to have a really big hit. He just needed to make sure that he helped advance the runners. You know, that was he just needed to have a quality at bat, and that was the big thing. Is if Mo doesn't have his throwing gaffes and. The, the Diamondbacks don't lock themselves into to two on. They're they're looking at needing big hits 
they're looking at needing to put the balls and a ball in the seats or at least splitting the gap. In this case, though, they just needed to find themselves a quality at bat. And Womack was not known for having much of a bat. He wasn't known for having much of anything other than wheels. But the one thing you could never say about Womack is that he he never, ever gave up. He never gave it away in at-bat. He might be embarrassed in many at-bats, swinging at stuff that he couldn't reach, but he was always grinding everything out. So when he dug in against uh, Shaken Rivera, like, he can put in a quality at-bat. This is a guy who, he may still wind up striking out because that cutter is filthy and <laughs> he and Mariano has made fools out of hitters 10 times better than Womack, but we're going to get our quality at bat. And it wound up being that and so much more. It's first Rivera's first blown save since night in the postseason since 1997. Yeah. That, that he literally, it was the one inning James, you talked about he couldn't throw even to second base, and yeah. it was, everything came apart in one inning after four years of perfection. And it once Womack hooked that shot into right field, and the game was tied. That was pretty much the game right there. Uh, it was one of those, the Diamondbacks finally were on the roll again. And the Diamondbacks also knew that the Yankees had absolutely nobody in that bullpen better than Mariano Rivera. And we just took the yep. best they had to give and at least tied it up. So even if it did go to extra innings, who were they going to throw Whoever they throw is not as good as this guy. We'll be glad that he's off the mound. We'll take our, you know, we'll take our chances against. I guess probably would have been Mike Stanton, maybe. Although Stanton kind of got lit up the night before and probably didn't have anything left. The, so the other Mike like, Stanton. Hmm? The other Mike Stanton. Yeah, the other Mike Stanton. <laughs> but it, it was just one of those. Who were they going to throw that was going to be any better than Mariano? Nobody. Meanwhile. The Diamondbacks had Kim ready. I mean, because RJ RJ got lifted for a pinch hitter, so he certainly wasn't going back out in the tenth, even though he he had it in his arms still. He he certainly wasn't going back out. The guy that was going to be pitching in the tenth inning was going to be Byung Young Kim, and Kim was looking for some hella payback, and Kim was better even when he gave up those home runs. It's not like he gave up those home runs on fat pitches and didn't get anybody out before that. I mean, we talked earlier, he'd gotten through a couple innings. That's how they had gotten to see him so often. Kim was going to be the best pitcher on either team left available. And he was the next guy coming in. So it suddenly became hey, we tied this up against Mariano. We have this game now because they have nobody mm. left. And we still have Kim. Yep. yep. And then there was Gonzo. 
Yeah, and you know the the, the announcers do the whole the whole, and why not? You know because he, here's Gonzo coming to the plate. And all <laughs> up, you know, got J Bell over there on third base, ready to come flying home, and you know the announcers are like, "Why not Gonzo? Of course it's somebody." <laughs> And that's what was so funny. Like, as I said earlier, just like we all expected that moment. Like, oh, Gonzo, of course, he's going to blast this over, you know, 400 feet. And no, it wasn't that at all. Friggin' blooper. Outside, you know, after hitting all the home runs ever, uh, hitting a blooper to win the goddamn World Series. And I, I still can't understand how he did this. Just won the game on the most unspectacular hit ever in probably in World Series history. And it's not even a hit of Jeter's playing in his normal position. Yeah. But, but Tori, yes. Tori yes, yes. put a shift on which mm-hmm. took Jeter out of his normal. Because one thing I'll give to Jeter, I don't know that there's ever been a shortstop who was better at shagging little fly fly balls than than Jeter. And that little blooper would have been right up where Jeter always was able to just go shag it. It would have been an easy little bloop out, and we would have been in extras, and Kim would have been on the mound again. <laughs> and, yeah, who knows what happens then. Right? Oh, history. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, he sees it fall in, and he does his whole victory dance all the way down first base because there's no way in hell he would have been safe any other way. (laughs) There you have it. That is the story. And these are the basis stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at The Basis Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcasts at the Stories Pods on Twitter. It's our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly. As in the moment, did you guys, as the opponents, realize or think about the fact that the Yankees pulled the infield in when it's not like Gonzo was going to sprint down first base and a ground ball anywhere would have ended the inning. Um, Looking back, actually, I, I will say this. In the moment, I was surprised how far in the infield was because Gonzo was a power bat. Like, he was a power bat all year. That's what he did. He was a power bat. And they were all playing in. And if you look on the on the uh, on the replay, and, and if someone pulls it up here, I mean, he did not hit that deep or even slightly deep into the outfield. That was just on the fringes. James, comment. Uh, we were all kind of wondering what Tori was doing, but then at the same time, we were looking at. How did the Diamondbacks get to the point they were at? And it was playing a lot of. They were using their speed and they were playing smart on the bases. And Brenly was known for being a guy who would 
tell his team when it going small. I mean, earlier in the se- in the series, one of the big hits was Matt Williams coming to the plate in the cleanup spot, dropping down a bunt. And Gonzo coming up to the plate. Everybody knows he's a big swinger. But J-Bell, I mean, he wasn't the Tony Womack or Meteor Cummings type speeder. J-Bell had good speed back then. That was before he, you know, he got, he kind of hit the aging curve. He had good speed. Gonzo had pretty decent speed. It was one, it, you weren't really necessarily worried about him laying down a bunt, but they really were trying to cut off that play at the plate if he put anything on the ground. And yeah, it's, he got that jam. He got jammed up instead. And <laughs> I, I, the rest is history. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's easy to say in hindsight. I would have shifted the the defense the way Corey did, but I don't know that you can really pin the whole thing on Tory. And Worst case scenario, if he leaves Jeter where he Jeter usually is, and it goes to the tenth inning. As I said, the tenth inning is Kim is now on the mound, and Tori is still going to have to turn to exhausted bullpen arm number six to come in and pitch to the Diamondbacks all over again in, in the bottom of the inning when they've got momentum, and you know. It's still going to be, you know, Gonzo's out. That means they're going to be leading off with Matt Williams, Reggie Sanders, and uh, Steve Finley. No, Finley was, it would have been Matt Williams and Reggie Sanders and then somebody else. I mean, you were going to have real bats coming to yep. the plate against them in the bottom of the 10th anyway. So, Terry was playing to end it right then, right there. <laughs> So it was. 